0: Welcome to Middle East Forum in the Morning. This is Greg Roman reporting live from WWDB, 860 AM Philadelphia, on the main line. It's been an exciting past week since our last program, right before Thanksgiving. I hope everybody ate enough turkey, had enough tryptophan, and is now back at work to start the holiday surge before we go on holiday vacation, before Christmas, New Year's, and the beginning of 2019. In the Middle East there has been significant news that is broken again this week with more groundbreaking developments in the relationships between Israel and her Arab neighbors. It's gone beyond that, though, of just the Arab neighbors immediately around Israel and has now entered into Africa and even so far away as the Persian Gulf. In the Jerusalem Post, a report that came out yesterday indicated that Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu will travel to Chad soon to formally announce the establishment of diplomatic ties with President Idris Deby, just visiting Israel earlier this week. The announcement came after Netanyahu met for the third time in two days with the visiting president before the latter ended his two-day visit, the first ever by a Chadian president to the nation state of Israel. According to the statement, the two leaders discussed common threats and the war against terrorism. The desire for Israel expertise in fighting terror is believed to be one of the main reasons Debbie decided to renew ties with Israel, 46 years after Chad severed formal diplomatic ties. The statement coming out of the Prime Minister's office said that the two leaders also discussed cooperation in the fields of agriculture, border protection, technology, solar energy, water, and health. Beyond this, another report that came out on I-24 News was that President Donald Trump's administration has told Israel that it will present its long-awaited Middle East peace plan next year. Israel's UN envoy, Ambassador Danny Danone to the United Nations, told journalists that he believes the peace plan was completed and that the administration had discussed timing with Israel to unveil the proposals. Danone was quoted as saying, We don't know the details of the plan, but we know that it's completed. He added that the early next year was considered the best timing because it will allow several months before expected elections in Israel. A rollout of the peace plan in early 2019 will allow Trump to present it without interfering in our political debate. Now, what does a visit by the president of Chad to Israel, the first time ever by an official from that country, and Trump's rollout of a diplomatic peace process, potentially in the middle of Israeli elections, have to do with one another? You have two competing diplomatic theories here that of regional engagement and that of hegemonic engagement. The idea that Israel is now reaching out to countries that have not had ties with it for almost 50 years and some other countries that never had ties with it whatsoever is one where diplomacy is being born out of Jerusalem at its own interests. The introduction of a peace plan by the president or any sort of diplomatic initiative coming out of the White House is a repeated 30-year process that started with George Shultz in 1988, at least as it relates to the Palestinians. And if we want to go all the way back to 1973, of American presidents, secretaries of state, and other diplomats trying to tell Israel what to do with its neighbors. Now, this worked twice. Once with Anwar Sadat and Menachem Begin, meeting in Jerusalem in 1978 and 1979 before the Camp David peace talks under the auspices of Jimmy Carter. The Egyptian-Israel peace treaty still exists to this day. The second initiative was King Hussein and Yitzhak Rabin, the prime minister of Israel back in the early 90s, coming up with the Jordanian-Israel peace accord. That was done under the auspices of President Clinton. But what is not known by many in the public this is that Sadat and Begin were already speaking to one another through intermediaries before the U.S. became involved. The same thing was true about the relationship between King Hussein and former Israeli prime ministers that had cooperated since 1949 on different security initiatives, but this was all done on what's called Track 2 behind the scenes. The issue right now with Israel and the Palestinian process which is something that's been going on since Oslo and many, many different failed attempts, over 80 failed attempts by the American government to try to broker peace between the two sides, is that there is not one address on the Palestinian side to find peace. And if the president comes forward and he says, Israel, go and have a good faith effort to negotiate with the Palestinians, one must ask, who on the Palestinian side is representing their interests? Is it Hamas? Is it the Islamic Jihad, both terror organizations? Is it the Palestinian Authority, a kleptocratic, autocratic, corrupt government that has no popular mandate? Or is it with grassroots leaders, families, clans, tribes, mayors of cities, city councils? I'd recommend to go with the latter rather than the three former. The reason being that if you want to broker peace, you should go. And recognize the mistakes that were done with Jordan and with Egypt and go directly to speak to the people. Now, the Israeli elections will find themselves in a precarious position, especially those politicians running in those elections. Will this be a mandate on the Trump peace plan or will it be an effort to try to rebuff it? If the peace plan is accepted by the Israeli public, you still have no Palestinian partner. If the peace plan is rejected by the Israeli public in this election and they go forward and elect someone who's a prime minister, whether it be Netanyahu or someone else, it will be very hard to renew trust with the United States. And that's why before elections take place and before a peace plan is introduced, the Israelis must change their strategic mindset both at the level of government, the military, the people, and the body politic to one which we've been prescribing on this program for the past three months as Israel victory. The platform for any Israeli party that's running for Knesset elections should not be one that lets make peace with the Palestinians based on our goal to achieve peace without first participating in the societal restructuring of the Palestinian mindset towards the Israelis. If I'm an Israeli politician... And I'm speaking to the public. My message would be, we are willing to speak with the Palestinians. But opposed to us saying that we demand no preconditions on their side, we do have preconditions on our side. One, give up your failed dream of trying to reject the idea of a Jewish state living next to you. Two, stop the incitement in your kindergartens, your elementary schools, and all throughout your education system going on to adulthood through your media institutions and organs. Three, lay down your arms and cease violence against our state. And four, acknowledge that you are pursuing your own economy, polity, culture, and society based on building a Palestinian narrative that's not fundamentally interred. In rejecting the Jewish narrative if Trump meets with an Israeli leader who expresses and articulates these four goals vis-a-vis a Palestinian he'll find some success if not Israel will continue building regional relationships like with the Chadian president and he will find himself in a position of strength because a regional bloc will go to demand the Palestinians acquiescence to Israel's goals rather than the United States coming in and demanding another failed peace initiative. Samantha Mandelas after these messages. The Middle East Forum promotes American interests in the Middle East and protects Western values from Middle Eastern threats. The Forum sees the region, with its profusion of dictatorships, radical ideologies, existential conflicts, and weapons of mass destruction, as a major source of problems for the United States. Accordingly, we urge bold measures to protect Americans and their allies. Read more at www.meforum.org or check us out on Twitter at ME Forum, the Middle
1: East Forum, protecting your interests. Every day, the men and women of the United States Marine Corps demonstrate their commitment to defend the American way of life. Since 1775, we have served our nation as a force in readiness. From combat operations, to humanitarian assistance, in every corner of the world. No matter where the mission takes us today, or wherever our country needs us tomorrow, we always remember the land we call home. As Marines, we take a stand for each other, for our nation. For us all, the few, the proud, the Marines. Welcome back
0: to Middle East Forum Century Radio on WWDB 860 AM Philadelphia Talk Radio. My next guest is someone I have the privilege of calling a colleague and a friend. And the work that she has been doing for the past year and a half to two years, even arguably throughout her entire career, has focused on debunking extremism, of taking away the pernicious excuses that are used by mainstream American Islamists that they harbor to convey their messages of intolerance across different societies and spectra of the American way of life. Samantha Mandela serves as the Middle East Forum's Islamist Watch Project Coordinator. She joined MEF after coordinating anti-boycott, divestment, and sanctioned faculty efforts for Scholars for Peace in the Middle East, led by Asaf Romorowski, our guest from last week, and also managing distribution for Americans for Peace and Tolerance's documentary, Hate Spaces. After Samantha earned her master's degree in Israel, she served as a Senior Campus Coordinator and Editor-in-Chief for the campus team at the Committee for Accuracy in Middle East Reporting in America, CAMERA, in Boston. Samantha, welcome to the program.
2: Hi, Greg. Thank you for having me. So great to speak with you.
0: It's great to have you. So, Samantha, you have been engaged in a campaign against the Hyatt Hotel Corporation for their hosting of an American extremist group, Americans for Muslim and Palestine, led by Hatam Bazian, the founder of Students for Justice in Palestine in the uh, Bay Area. But Before we get to talk about this campaign that you are, are, are very uh, intensely involved in, what is it that you focus on in terms of the outreach to American corporations, corporate social responsibility programs, and community foundations in urging them to decouple themselves from American Islamist extremists, can you tell us a little bit uh, can you tell us a little bit about your work?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so we believe at the Middle East Forum that nonviolent Islamism is just as much of a problem as violent Islamism, and at times it can be even even a greater problem because the issue with nonviolent Islamism is that it frequently attaches itself to uh, liberal causes a uh, progressive causes and uses the idea uh, this trendy idea of intersectionality to um, convince the public essentially that quote all oppressions are related and 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 all, um, all all victims are related all suppressed populations are related and their struggles are interconnected so what we have here is um, this basically extreme Extremist ideology, and an ideology where, um, through nonviolence, extremism becomes acceptable because it's attached to progressivism. Um, And and, and so what we've got is that all these uh, corporations that are interested in projecting idea of corporate responsibility, foundations that are interested in supporting progressive causes and organizations that fight for the underdog, um, so they they essentially have been hoodwinked. um, And they end up... Supporting causes that are attached to nonviolent Islamism. So, for instance, the Silicon Valley Community Foundation which is one of the largest um, community foundations in the country with an annual budget of millions, has been um, determinedly supporting the Council on American Islamic Relations. Now anyone who knows anything about the Council on American Islamic Relations, or CARE, knows that their history of pernicious anti-Semitism, even homophobia, uh, hiring hate preachers to um, to, to sort of spread their messaging, I mean, that that history is extensive and well documented. Um, And yet the Silicon Valley Community Foundation has deep ties with CARE, and despite multiple requests from the Middle East Forum, um, is insisting on funding them. Now, this is partially because CARE's propaganda campaigns and branding have been wildly successful. So CARE is able to position itself as an organization that supports oppressed minorities um, and, and victims, when in reality it's, it's connected with um, uh, activists that are involved with the Muslim Brotherhood, it's, it's hired anti-Semites, um, it's even, um, you know, hired speakers like Omar Suleiman, who has called homosexuality a repugnant, shameless sin. You know, I mean, these, these people... Pretend that they really are sort of on the progressive side of things, but when you get right down to it and examine what they say and their behavior, they're really quite extreme. Um, so, so, you're, so you're
0: telling me that there's a foundation that is a self described vanguard of liberal and, 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 and progressive values in the Bay Area. They think, I, I think they, I saw now that they have something like $14 billion in assets under management. This is the go-to philanthropy for Mark Zuckerberg and his wife, Priscilla Chan, giving over $1.5 billion in Facebook stock, I believe.
2: Absolutely. This yep. got $500
0: Absolutely. million dollars in donations from the founder of WhatsApp, Google, right. Freescale Semiconductor, Apple, all coordinate their corporate social responsibility programs through this one entity in the Bay Area.
2: Right. Yet, Absolutely.
0: Yeah, they, they are giving money to care. I, I think they actually – were the recipients of a reward or, or an award from CARE at their Bay Area dinner uh, uh, about a year ago. Yeah. Now now, 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 what kind of response have you received from the Silicon Valley Community Foundation after all of your entreaties went unanswered?
2: Right. You no, know, um, Greg. It's actually really—it's really unfortunate because the response that we've received has not only been—it's um, gone beyond sort of ignoring us, and it, it's actually um, sort of deliberately said we're 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 you know said to us we're not going to listen to you. Um, you know we've called them, um, we've offered to introduce them to Muslim organizations, our partners, Muslim organizations, um, the Muslim reform movement, the American. American. American Islamic Forum for Democracy, the American Islamic Congress. These are Muslim activists who, uh, you know, who actually fulfill the mission that Silicon Valley Community Foundation is interested in, and they've completely ignored us. Um, We've written to Greg Avis, who was the interim CEO. I think we've written somewhere around three or four letters. We've made calls. Um, The officials, actually high-level officials who attended that banquet organized by CARE, San Francisco Bay Area, which, by the way, hosted um, hate preachers to Raj as well as uh, Noted anti-Semitic activist Linda Sarsour. So um, the, the, the official who attended that banquet from uh, Silicon Valley Community Foundation actually blocked us on Twitter um, because we asked her, listen, this is, these are the things that, for instance, Linda Sarsour and Siraj Wahaj have said in public. Are, is this really what Silicon Valley Community Foundation believes? You know, um, Linda Sarsour uh, infamously um, advocated essentially for, for FGM on two women, Ayan Hersi Ali and Brigitte Gabriel, because she disagrees with them. Um, and Siraj Wahaj has in public, in speeches, advocated for, uh, essentially for Muslim men to go out and be violent against, uh, against their communities in order to convert them to Islam. Um, you know, I mean, we're 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 not talking about, you know, sort of the majority ordinary Muslim Americans who who are just Muslim and also American and would like to go about their daily lives. We're talking about real uh, uh, Islamists. And Silicon Valley, uh, the Community Foundation, which has all of these resources and could do, you know, could corroborate our research on their own, could uh, open a dialogue with us, could be introduced to our our Muslim uh, uh, friends and allies. They've they've completely shunned us. It's really it's a it's a tragedy. It really is.
0: So so, so that, that's on the community foundation side, and, and it seems like there's almost no hope for dealing with them. I mean, I think the level of escalation here might have to get to a congressional investigation in terms of them abusing their tax exempt status because of their support for extreme. And And what they don't realize is, and I think one of the subjects we didn't talk about was Islamic Relief, an entity in the United States which is currently under federal investigation by federal authorities. If one individual or one organization finds themselves under indictment, the house of cards of intersectionality and of the support that SVCF has, has built up will all fall apart. It's better for them to pull out now, listen to MEF's Early warning radar system, and 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 to not necessarily comply with our request, but like you said, at least open a dialogue, and then maybe get in the way that they can uh, find an easy way out rather than uh, being uh, criticized by us or supporting them. Now, right. now, now that that's a community foundation, a a, a semi-private entity. But one of the pieces of work that you've been doing a lot of, of broadcasting on Twitter, social media, you've written letters, we've reached out to some uh, of our, our friends in the corporate community, has been with the Hyatt hotel chain. I, right. under, I understand that they issued a new policy after banning another organization, Act for America, under Bridget Gabriel, and not allowing their hotel chains to host that organization or its chapters anyway and anywhere throughout the United States or even maybe the rest of the world. But on the other hand, they just hosted an extremist conference, I think, this last weekend. Can Can you tell us more about the work you've been doing on that and also yeah. and wh- what it means in terms of maybe their doublespeak?
2: Right, absolutely. Now, this is a really – so this is very layered. And actually um, – so – so what actually ended up happening okay, so in the beginning of September, um, the Hyatt in Crystal City, Virginia so we're, we're talking about right next to the Pentagon so Brigitte Gabriel's organization Act for America um, is uh, it's a large organization, it describes itself as sort of a national security grassroots group um, they actually they were scheduled to have their annual convention at this Hyatt in Crystal City, now um, organizations like Muslim Advice and the Southern Poverty Law Center, which is a whole other wrinkle, this whole other layer that we can talk about. Um, So those organizations sort of launched a campaign um, and a petition to get uh, Mark Hoplamavian, the CEO of Hyatt Hotels, to stop hosting. Now, Hyatt actually um, decided that they were going to go ahead with this conference. But then, so the conference actually was held at this Hyatt in Crystal City. But then, um, sort of in reaction, as the SPLC tells it, um, uh, Mark Hoplamazian came out at a conference at the end of September and said, you know what, we're reevaluating our policies. We're not going to host hate groups anywhere in the country from here on out. Now, it's interesting because in this specific declaration, um, Hyatt didn't name Act for America. However, Act for America is named as a hate group. By the Southern Poverty Law Center, right Um which has had a lot of problems and a lot of controversy in the past couple of years for um, naming uh, anti-extremist organizations or individuals as quote unquote hate groups. For instance, um, it named Majid Nawaz, who is a prominent uh, uh, Muslim-born and raised activist. He's he's an activist for freedom of speech, especially in freedom of religion. Um, And they named him an anti-Muslim bigot. Um, He actually ended up suing, and the SPLC had to remove his name from their designation of him as an anti-Muslim bigot, and and they settled um, with him over that. But there have been multiple controversies like that. Um, it should also tell you something that the SPLC has not named most of the extremist Islamist organizations that exist in the United States. So for instance, American Muslims for Palestine, which we'll talk about in just a second, um, which has a long history of connections to extremist organizations, extremist figures, and blatant um, even neo-Nazi inspired anti-Semitic tropes, uh, they are not named by the SPLC as as a hate group. So it's 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 as of yet not entirely one hundred percent clear how much influence the SPLC has on what groups Hyatt designates a hate group and therefore unacceptable. But Since the SPLC was involved in the Muslim Advocates campaign and has published after Mr. Hoplamazian's declaration, it's probably safe to say that his declaration uh, of forbidding hate groups and Hyatt, his um, his uh, designation of hate groups is probably influenced, unfortunately, by the SPLC's designation. So now, now we get to the part about the AMP, American Muslims for Palestine. So for the past several years, AMP has been hosting their annual convention at the Hyatt Regency O'Hare in Chicago. Um, and we've done an extensive amount of research looking at not only what AMP staff has said at these conventions, what they say elsewhere but also what their hired speakers say at their conference and what those speakers do so we actually sent a letter to Hyatt before the conference was scheduled to go on and said listen we support you in your designation and your in saying that hate groups are not acceptable at your venues good for you there needs to be a line drawn in the sand and with your line drawn in the sand consider AMP, consider their statements, consider their behavior, and and we urge you to, to designate them as a hate group. Um, Hyatt said no. Well, they didn't uh, respond after several attempts to contact so, them. So, and so then sometimes
0: he- with, without speaking, that's, that's an answer in and of itself.
2: Exactly. Absolutely. Um, And and what ended up happening was that I ended up contacting them for a third time and saying, listen, guys, I'm writing an article. Um, Now I'm just asking you for comments. I wanted to give you a heads up on publishing about this issue. Um, So they didn't get back to that either. They did return um, and say that uh, via email that because of the security and privacy of their guests, they couldn't give us any information about AMP's event. So this type of impersonal response is troubling because it says essentially that they haven't looked at the evidence. Either they haven't looked at the evidence, which is troubling in and of itself, because it speaks to um, the success of uh, Muslim advocates, Care associated organizations, as brand of branding anti-Islamist organizations as Islamophobic, which are two separate things.
0: So this is uh, this is the example of an organization like uh, Care calling a Muslim reformer like Zuhdi Jasser a uh, Uncle Tom,
2: right? Exactly. Absolutely. And, and, or, or Majid Nawaz calling Majid Nawaz Islamophobic or, or, um, calling, you know, the, the exact, you're exactly right. So Um, so Samantha, we have, we have have
0: about a minute left. What should, what, what should these, uh, these, these organizations, these companies, these foundations that are hosting these extremist conferences that are providing funding to them? What is your organization? What is the Middle East Forum doing to make these organizations know that they are on our watch?
2: So we we're working really hard at uh, Middle East Forum and and my department specifically Islamist Watch with my colleague Sam Westrup and 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 uh, Dr. Oren Litwin. Um, we're working really hard to basically pull the mask off, to undo this branding um, and to expose. Basically, extremist organizations for what they are show the ideology that they actually preach, um, take off that mask of of sort of civil rights and supporting the underdog. And on the other side, we're we're working to lift up the voices of actually ordinary, moderate Muslims who are interested in American values, democracy, and also just happen to be practicing Muslims um, whose voices are silenced by this loud minority of nonviolent extremists. So uh, our work is twofold, and uh, we've got a long way ahead of us, but I think we're, we're making progress, thank goodness.
0: <laughs> Samantha Mandelis, thanks for joining us this morning.
2: Thank you so much, Greg. It was really a pleasure.
0: Have a great day. After you these too. messages, Bye-bye. Warren Litwin from the same project, Islamist Watch. The intellectual backbone of American Middle East studies has provided a rationalable excuse for individuals trying to promote an anti-American agenda. We see that those individuals who are in Islamic Studies and American Middle East Studies programs at some of the most major American universities find themselves justifying the behavior of America's enemies overseas and promoting domestic threats that harm us here at home. If you want to go and learn more about Campus Watch, the Reader's Digest of American Middle East Studies, check us out on Campus Watch at www.campus-watch.org.
3: well, you really have both. See, stuff is defined as household articles considered as a group. Sometimes this stuff is no longer needed. Wait, no longer needed? That can't be right. Because remember those jobs you were looking for? Those are really needed. And they're the stuff inside your stuff. Even inside that winter coat that moved with you to Phoenix. Our job is to unlock those jobs. And it starts when you donate your stuff to your local Goodwill. Here's how we do it. When you donate to Goodwill, we sell your stuff to provide job training for people right here in your community. So just by team up with Goodwill, you help create jobs. And isn't that worth parting with the leftover keytar from your 80s cover band? Goodwill. Donate stuff, create jobs. Find your nearest donation center at goodwill.org. A message from Goodwill and the Ad Council.
0: Welcome back to Middle East Forum Century Radio. On the bottom of the hour, we have Orrin Litwin joining us, a research fellow with the Middle East Forum's Islamist Watch Project who's extensively involved with research in its Islamist money and politics program. Oren is an associate fellow for the R Street Institute and has previously served as a political risk fellow for young professionals in foreign policy, and also as an adjunct professor of political science at the United States Naval Academy in Annapolis. Oren, welcome back. Thanks to be here. And I understand that you have just completed a whirlwind tour of France and Israel. How how are the conditions over there?
4: Uh, very interesting. Uh, France it's still definitely, uh, uh, I would say, not a uh, comfortable place for the Jewish community. You have to pretty much hide who you are in public, and that's uh, going to continue to be the case until the French government really gets a handle on its uh, homegrown extremism problem. Um, and that's, uh, that's pretty much the highlight of that trip.
0: And uh, I I think right now you're you're avoiding these massive riots that are going on in Paris on the champs de l'Elysée in response to a carbon tax, not really necessarily uh, connected to the Middle East except for the fact that we deal a lot with uh, countries whose economies depend on hydrocarbon resources. But um, I'm glad you got out of there before the the streets got rough.
4: Yeah, uh, well, I appreciate that.
0: So we brought you on the program this morning to do a post-election roundup of the uh, last uh, nine months, arguably year and a half of research that you've been doing on the funding of American Islamists to American politicians. And we have a unique situation right now where two or three American Islamists themselves have been elected to the U.S. Congress. But before we get to Congress, I was hoping that we might do a little bit of a roundup on three issues. First, the connection between the issues that these candidates were running on. What were their platforms? Second. What do American Islamists get out of actually sponsoring these candidates? And third, who are we talking about? So let's start with the third point first. I understand that you've done a survey where you're seeing that American Muslims, uh, many of whom are, are, are of, a, of a great background, they have served in the military, they've had professions, but a minority of whom are, are a little bit problematic for our democratic institutions. They're entering office now in larger numbers A lot of it is city councils, school boards. They have nothing to do with any of the Islamist organizations that our organization tracks. Yet, these Islamist organizations are claiming credit for their election. But in some exceptional cases, it ends up being Islamists that are burrowing in. And this is in terms of the higher office that that we alluded to beforehand. Can you tell us a little bit about Rashida Tlaib, Ilhan Omar, Keith Ellison, Akhtar, a few others that have gone to office, who are the most uh, extreme examples of people who are going to be representing their districts now in Congress, or even some people who have been elevated to the level of Attorney General of their state?
4: Absolutely. And so Keith Ellison had been a congressman in um, in uh, Minnesota ever since 2006, and we've been aware of his extremism for some time. He's been an ally of CARE, the Council on American-Islamic Relations, uh, for quite some time, and he's been very... Anti-Israel, very pro-Islamist, and uh, and we've been, uh, he's been sort of the, the standard bearer for a long time as far as Islamists in political office, and he was the one who won election to the attorney generalship of Minnesota, but with him gone, that allowed space for two uh, <clears throat> for uh, two new Islamist uh, Congress, congresswomen, actually to uh, emerge. One of them is <clears throat> sorry, one of them is Rashida Tlaib. She is congressman in, a congresswoman in, uh, in uh, Michigan. And she, for, so, so you were asking about the political platforms that they were running under. Most of the p- candidates we saw, and Talib and uh, congresswoman-elect Yohan Omar, uh, were no exception. They were running as un- unapologetic progressives. They were really toning down any sort of religious issue other than pointing to their Islam as an identity issue. Uh, but but they were trying to appeal to the Progressive Alliance and say, we are standard bearers for the new intersectional progressive alliance between minorities and therefore vote for us. Now, um, so so Ms. Tlaib won election in uh, Michigan, and Ilhan Omar won election to uh, Keith Ellison's old seat in Minnesota. So these are two new members of the House of Representatives. Both of them, while they were being elected, they they positioned themselves as straight progressives. Once they were safely elected, they felt free to be a little more honest, and uh, Ms. Talib openly said that she uh, supported a, quote, one-state solution in Israel, uh, the Israel-Palestinian conflict, I should say, which basically means Palestinians get the right of return and they overwhelm Israel demographically.
0: So, so that, and, that means the end of the Jewish state? Yes, it does. Okay, so she's calling for a process, even if it may be uh, democratic or diplomatically initiated, that would effectively be a sort of uh, ethnocide of of the Jewish right to rule themselves.
4: Yes, and on a related note, uh, Ilhan Omar um, announced or or she disclosed that she supported the BDS movement, the Boycott, Divestment, and Sanctions movement, seeking to uh, basically make Israel anathema, and uh, she, did, she did so even though she was at a profile, uh, a uh, rather a candidate forum uh, in uh, a Jewish temple before the election where she said that she did not support BDS because it was counterproductive to the peace process. And then after she was elected, she did an, a, uh, an interview with a website called Muslim Girl where she said that, yes, actually, she does support BDS and she thinks it's a free speech issue to have BDS. So
0: we're used to politicians promising one thing and doing something else. But this, yeah, seems like stark, it, it, this seems like it's too stark, this seems like it's two stark examples. Very clear cut of there being a certain amount of subterfuge in their campaigns in their in their first run for Congress. And now they have completely abandoned those positions and revealed their true colors. What 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 does this mean uh, beyond these individuals who are elected to office? What does it mean for the people who are backing them and the people in their own communities who voted for them? Has there been any backlash against these positions from either their districts or from national organizations that deal with these issues?
4: So uh, Rashida Tlaib lost her endorsement from the J Street uh, lobbying group because even though their, their uh, statement was very, very complimentary to her for being progressive, since J Street is progressive, They did say, well, we're not allowed to actually endorse people who don't support the two-state solution, therefore we have to pull our endorsement. Uh, Ilhan Omar, uh, a number of her voters were actually Jewish, and they feel very betrayed that she basically lied to their face saying that she did not support BDS, when in fact she does. And I think the, the larger issue here is that Islamist candidates will say whatever they need to do to get elected, just like most politicians, until they get to the point where they've gotten as high as they think they can go. Rashida Tlaib won her primary with about 37%. So, and that's in a single congressional district. <clears throat> and I don't think she thinks that she will ever go to higher office than where she is in Congress. So she is at the highest level she can realistically aspire to. Therefore, now she is free to, to reveal her true opinions and to work for Islamist policies such as opposition to Israel uh, and such as greater freedom of action for Islamists in the United States. And I think something similar is going on with Yohan Omar.
0: But it's not just about the candidates who are elected. It's also about the teams that work to get them elected and their allied organizations. There's an incident that took place in Chicago over the weekend that I became familiar about by reading it on a, a blog. But I, I wonder if you've been able to cover the efforts of um, some of the Get Out the Vote directors that have been behind these candidates, some of the individuals who were running for office that maybe didn't succeed. And, and I know you have one example that you wanted to bring up on this program that I thought you might be able to enlighten our audience with.
4: Yes. So there's a Dr. Sumaira who, um, <coughs> pardon me, who is the uh, who is the uh, who is the Get Out the Vote director for Rashida Tlaib and is planning to run for office himself in Virginia during the next election. <coughs> And he had a... uh, What
0: exactly does get out the vote mean, just so we clarify that?
4: Right. So get out the vote means that if if you're running for office, obviously you want people to vote for you. Now, partly that involves persuading the people who tend to vote regularly, but partly that also involves taking people who wouldn't ordinarily vote and convincing them to vote. And that's been a big deal in the Muslim community in particular, because they're only now just really starting to register to vote and to vote actively. So get out the vote is very, very important for these Islamist politicians in order to mobilize sources of support that hadn't been
0: active before. And and they do this not just by encouraging the, uh, the Muslim community to come out and vote, but they actively build coalitions with other organizations that may not have an Islamic background, right?
4: Correct. And this is part of the larger strategy that they have to build these, quote, intersectional alliances with other progressive groups saying that we will support your progressive uh, priorities even when they seem to violate Islam, such as support for uh, gay rights, uh, support for, for you know, trans communities, um, support for abortion, um, e- even though it, it, it violates our principles. And that's the part that the progressives really don't understand, that right now, in order to get support, in order to get their people to high levels of political office, the Islamists are willing to do that, but as Dr. Samira actually said very explicitly, then that he, he compared this practice to uh, to the uh, to the, uh, to the uh, traditional idea of a hudna, where uh, uh, Muhammad made temporary alliances uh, with uh, different people in the Arabian Peninsula who he viewed as his enemies and who in the future would become his enemies. So, so these these temporary alliances are just for pragmatic purposes in the present time and are due to be broken as soon as it's politically convenient. And I wish the progressives would understand that they're playing with fire by allowing Islamist groups, in particular, so much political pull within their coalition.
0: Okay, so, so you have this, this uh, un- unholy alliance, let's call it, between progressive and Islamists. What do the Islamists do after they get elected to office? Do they, do they pivot and, and turn on those who help them get elected?
4: That's the Jewish constituents within her district, but uh, and, and that's the Jewish constituents within her district, but uh, and, and that's again to to larger point of uh, the Israel-Palestinian issue is one of the major major priorities of the Islamist movement, uh, obviously, and they seem to feel that now after many years of preparing the battle uh, battleground, so to speak, with organizations such as Students for Justice in Palestine. Uh, and others like that who have spread the, these poisonous uh, views about the Israel, uh, you know, Israel's conduct, now they think that they can safely be a little more open about their hatred of the Jewish state and get away with it. But in general, the the um, Islamists are still pushing the progressive uh, policy platform in order to maintain their place within the coalition, and I think they will continue to, that, to do that right up until the point that they can drop the mask and start exerting political power to uh, to do what they really want.
0: Now, we've seen this happen also with grassroots organizations. Individuals like Linda Sarsour and her other co-founders of the Women's March were openly cavorting with uh, Louis Farrakhan, the head of the Nation of Islam, an extremist organization in this country, and a renowned anti-Semite. Now, there was backlash by one of the other founders of the Women's March saying that she would not have anything to do with Sarsour and her cohort so long as they were keeping uh, Farrakhan company. Now, we've seen that. that That's not, not necessarily electoral politics. But could you see a similar split between Islamists and the progressive movement in this country if there's a wider fissure that's exploited by revealing comments like this get up the vote director hat?
4: I think there could be, and I would actually draw the parallel between progressive attitudes toward Christianity, because as we know, there's not just one monolithic Christian group. There's Baptists, and there's Catholics, and there's uh, evangel- uh, Evangelicals, and there's uh, uh, you know Universalists. I don't know whether they're even considered Christians, but uh, all these different groups and political operators are very comfortable taking each group and, and viewing it in isolation saying well the catholics behave differently from the baptists who behave differently from the mormons and and viewing them differently and the progressives in particular are, um, that they have a level of suspicion almost verging on paranoia against groups like the southern baptists or the christian dominionists and so on and if they realize that the islamists are not simply muslims because there's no really such thing as saying one monolithic muslim bloc some Muslims are more moderate than others, and the Islamists are, you know, they're, they're directly motivated to, to gain power and use it for religious purposes, just like the, uh, the Christian dominionists are suspected of being. Um, and in that case, the pro- progressives really have the, the, the op- opportunity to recognize the difference between moderate patriotic Muslims who just want to help out their communities versus the islamists who are seeking to actively gain power and position themselves for a larger struggle and and recognizing the difference they need to to defend the very principles that they 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 actually claim to to uh, work for such as uh, actual tolerance because you know the islamists don't actually like gays they don't actually like abortion they're just taking this uh, this pose in order to gain power And sometime down the line, they're going to actively pursue their real priorities.
0: So what is Islamist Watch doing to uh, expose, exploit, to widen these fissures that have become apparent after this conference over the weekend? How is your project and the work that you're doing making progressives aware of the manipulation that they are being subjected to on a daily basis, especially at a heightened period when we have... Elections like that just took place a few weeks ago.
4: So the first step, obviously, is to just get, just get the word out. Put it on record. Tell people that this is what the Islamists say when they think they're, in, uh, they're, they're, they're among friends, and this is what they really believe, and you cannot allow yourself to forget that. That's step one. Step two, once it is on record, then you, you basically go to the politicians and say, are these the kind of people that you want to work with? Are these the kind of risks that you want to, uh, to take and eventually um, build a consensus among different parts of the progressive movement that this is actually dangerous to their core interests and they need to be a little more careful with the Islamists. You know, it's one thing to, to want to support the Muslim community, and that's great, but the way to support the Muslim community is not to allow the Islamists to speak for Muslims who actually do not agree with them. So you need to have that, that finer distinction between different parts of the Muslim community.
0: Okay, so, Oren, we're going to open up the phone lines. Our listeners can call in at 1-888-329-3306. That's toll-free. 1-888-329-3306. 888-329-3306. I'm going to ask you to stay on the line, and we're going to be back with some listener comments after these messages. Fascism was the danger to American interests in the early 20th century. Communism in the last half of that century and in the 21st century, we find our new ideological enemy, Islamism. Islamist Watch argues that violence is not the only or even the best way to apply Islamist ideas in Western liberal democracies. Islamist Watch monitors and exposes the growing influence of non-violent radical Islamist groups in the West while empowering moderate Muslims. Radical Islam is the problem. Mainstream Islam is the solution. Read more. At www.islamist watchorg or check us out on Twitter at Islamistwatch.
5: Introducing the YMCA. What? You already know the (laughs) why? Or so you think. Sure, you know the why for a swim, a workout, even a game of hoops. But did you know we're more than that? We're a cause. When you take your jump shot at the why, someone else is getting job training. Take a cardio class while kids are in an after-school enrichment program. Practice your downward-facing dog as a teen practices her leadership skills. That's the why. We work with people no matter their age, income, or background and give them the opportunity to learn, grow, and thrive all with one simple goal in mind, to strengthen our community. And we've got so much more that does just that. So while you might think of the why as that place for lifting weights, we're also about lifting entire communities. Introducing the why. We're so much more than a place, we're a cause. Visit ymca.net slash more.
0: Welcome back to Middle East Forum Century Radio. This is Greg Roman with our guest Oren Litwin on WWDB 860 AM Philadelphia Talk Radio. Oren, i got a few emailed comments that came in right now that I'm going to post to you. We've got about five minutes left before our last break. You can join us. All right, so I understand that there is a difference between 501c3 tax-exempt organizations that are not allowed to participate in electoral politics and then 501c4 organizations, which are called social welfare organizations, that can actually spend up to about 40% of their budget on direct electioneering. Now, we are aware of CARE and of American Muslims for Palestine and some of the other organizations which have get out the vote efforts but what exactly are the uh, organizations like Jetpack able to do in terms of enabling the Islamist Progressive Alliance and at the same time spending money on candidates to support their elections
4: So Jetpack can first of all they can actually endorse candidates which care legally cannot do although they've started close to the line before they can also, jetpack can also that they have a uh, training program for new candidates, teaching them how to run a campaign, how to uh, speak in public, and and different things like this. And they're able to actively intervene in the in a campaign and in an election in a way that care cannot do.
0: So I, I think that it might be incumbent upon organizations like the Middle East Forum and its allies to encourage these individuals who have Islamist tendencies to run for office. So they can be called out rather than to keep their opinions in private. Would you rather have the candidates withdraw their candidacy and just go back into the shadows from where they came? Or would you rather have them on public display and confronted with these opinions, especially Tlaib and Alhana Omar, who were just elected? I mean, they have another election two years from now. They're going to start running maybe six months to a year from now. Isn't it better to have that exposed rather than to have them go back into the recesses?
4: Um. To an extent, and, and I do agree that the more sunlight that we see on their actual behavior, the better. So in some sense, letting them act in office might have benefits. But my, my, my ultimate preference would be for a lot of Islamists to run for office and lose, so, so that we get the, uh, the benefits of them being exposed to scrutiny during the campaign, but they don't actually get the chance to use political power to advance their ends.
0: And, and and that makes a lot of sense just in so far as they have a platform, but then they get deplatformed by the people rather than the deplatforming examples we've spoken about on this program where a tech company or a charity or a payment processor makes a decision about your inability to participate in democracy. Now, Orrin, we've got about two minutes left. Is there anything that we should be aware of on the state or the local level? For instance, Keith Ellison's election right now and 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 uh, his his victory in Minnesota to become attorney general that our listeners should be on the watch out for.
4: Sure, uh, Keith Ellison is one for sure. Another one actually is the increasing influence of Linda Sarsour and her allies in New York City, and they've got the what's it the Muslim Democratic Club of New York. And they just succeeded in electing uh, two Muslim politicians to state office: uh, Charles Fall who was elected to the State Assembly of New York, and Robert Jackson, who was elected to the state Senate. And um, in in those cases, in some uh, issues of municipal municipal politics in New York City, we've seen the increasing influence by Srasour and by her club, uh, by others who work with her like Debbie Almontasser. Um, and that's the kind of thing that you really want to keep an eye on because that's where the real damage happens outside of the public eye.
0: And in general, what kind of positions are these individuals putting forth on a local level? That's very different from the federal entities.
4: Well, we just saw actually a case where uh, there was a uh, New York City grant given to about 15 different Muslim community organizations. but The total grant was like $200,000, and among the grantee, orga- uh, the grantee organizations was CARE, was the Muslim American Society, which is the American front for the Muslim Brotherhood, was the Islamic Circle of North America, ICNA, uh, which is a front for the uh, Jama'a Islamiya organization in Southeast Asia. And uh, ICNA actually was planning to use that money for religious purposes, and the uh, city was just uh, rebuked for that by the uh, Freedom From Religion Foundation, which did a good job on following up on this issue. But that's the kind of thing that they would be able to get away with if people are not watching.
0: So this is what we have to look forward to. It's not just Islamists getting elected to office, but it's using the public purse to then go back and supporting the organizations that helped them get elected in the first place. Warren Litwin, thanks for your interview this morning.
4: My pleasure, thanks for having
0: me. We'll be back with final thoughts after these messages. The Israel Victory Project steers U.S. policy toward backing an Israel victory over the Palestinians to resolve the Arab-Israeli conflict. Decades of what insiders call peace processing have left matters worse than where they started. The time has come for a new approach, a complete rethinking of the problem that draws on Israel's earlier and successful strategy of deterrence. Stop pressuring Jerusalem to compromise and make painful concessions. Instead, support Israeli victory, convincing Palestinians and others that the Jewish state will endure. Read more at meforum.org.
6: At any given moment, somewhere in America, a baby is taking a first step a developmental milestone. But for too many parents, a baby's first steps aren't just a milestone, they're a miracle. These are the parents of babies who were born prematurely or with birth defects. It's a crisis affecting more than half a million babies in the United States each year. You can help them by joining volunteers like you who walk in march for babies. The money you raise funds research and local programs that help babies overcome the challenges of premature birth and birth defects. Together, our steps make stronger, healthier babies a reality for thousands of families. Sign up today at marchforbabies.org to take the steps that help make milestones and even miracles possible. Who will you march for?
0: Welcome back to Middle East Forum Century Radio. Greg Roman here on WWDB 860 AM Philadelphia Talk Radio. In the next four minutes, I want to reflect on a conversation that I had last night at a program called Focus, an organization that's been set up in Center City, Philadelphia to be able to have intensive, deliberate, and meaningful conversations around the Israel Palestinian conflict. And I gave three points that I would recommend to my listeners on what it takes to have a successful political conversation, whether it be with a family member, like you may have just had over the Thanksgiving table, or in your community, or in even the workplace, which I would you know, urge you to, to not necessarily do, depending on what your uh, politics are at work. But if it does come up, this is what you can do. When you are speaking about a political issue, what is acceptable in Congress should be acceptable around the kitchen table. If there's an individual who makes a statement, and he's able to do it in the bowels of American democracy, you should be able to articulate that position too. Now, we just talked about some extremists who were elected to Congress, and God knows what they're going to be speaking about on the wells of the congressional floor or participating in committee debate. But if there's an issue that you want to discuss, you should be able to bring it up as well. And you should be able to do it in an atmosphere of civility without getting protested, without getting shouted down, and without having your opinion shut up. Whether it's in terms of speaking to a a member of the family and, and they say, well, this may not be polite and this may not be appropriate, but it's better to have more discussion than to keep your feelings bent up and inside and having them explode in the form of an argument rather than a debate. The second thing that should be acceptable for conversations about politics in America, especially when it comes to that of a Middle Eastern or Islamist nature is if you cannot find a platform to be able to have dialogue, create a platform yourself. Go out there. Create an organization. Create a, 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 not a book club, but a debate club. Have a public forum that takes place in the middle of City Hall in Center City or maybe somewhere else in your town square if you're listening outside of Philadelphia. And if you find that you're being censored on social media, if you're having your Facebook comments deleted, if you're not able to even have a certain amount of political participation and public participation through speech, you have to find your way forward. And lastly, create your boundaries for where you feel comfortable, but expand them in your own conversations. That's my wrap-up for today. I'd like to thank Delaney Janchik for organizing the program, or Litwin and Samantha Mendelis our guests. And as always, we're here on WWDB 860 AM, 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time in the mornings and on the podcast after. I'm Greg Roman. Have a great week.